Claudius, Part Three of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Steely. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Claudius Part Three, Paragraphs Twenty Eight to Forty Six. Amongst his freed men, the greatest favourite was the eunuch Poseides, whom, in his British triumph, he presented with the pointless spear, classing him among the military men. Next to him, if not equal in favour, was Felix, whom he not only preferred to commands both the cohorts and troops, but to government of the provenance of Judea, and he became, in consequence of his elevation, the husband of three queens. Another favourite was Harpocrus, to whom he granted the privilege of being carried in a litter within the city, and of holding public spectacles for the entertainment of people. In this class he was likewise Polybius, who assisted him in his studies, and had often the honour of walking between the two consuls. But above all others, Narcissus, his secretary, and Pallius, the controller of his accounts, were in high favour with him. He not only allowed them to receive, by decree of the Senate, immense presents, but also to be decorated with the Questorian and Praetorian ensigns of honour. So much did he indulge them in amassing wealth and, and plundering the public, that upon his complaining once at the lowness of his exchequer, Someone said, with great reason, it would be full enough if those two freed men of his would take him into partnership with them. Being entirely governed by these freed men, and as I have already said, by his wives, he was a tool of others rather than a prince. He distributed offices, or the command of armies, pardoned or punished, according as it suited their interests, their passions, or their caprice, and for the most part without knowing or being sensible of what he did not to enter into the minute details relative to the revocation of grants, the reversal of judicial decisions, obtaining his signature to fictitious appointments, or the bare-faced alteration of them after his signing, he put to death Appius Silanus, the father of his son-in-law, and the two Julias, the daughters of Drusus and Germanicus, without any positive proof of their crimes, with which they were charged or so much as permitting them to make any defence. He also cut off Sneas Pompey, the husband of his eldest daughter, and Lucius Solanus, who was betrothed to the younger Pompey, was stabbed in the act of unnatural lewdness with a favourite paramour. Solanus was obliged to quit the office of Praetor upon the 4th of the Calends of January, and to kill himself on the news day following, the very same on which Claudius and Agrippina were married. He condemned to death five-and-thirty senators, and above three hundred Roman knights, with so little attention to what he did, that when a centurion brought him word of the execution of a man of consular rank, who was one of a number, and told him that he had executed his order, he declared he had ordered no such thing, but he had approved of it, because his freed men, it seems, had said that the soldiers did nothing more than their duty in dispatching the emperor's enemies without waiting for a warrant but it is beyond all belief that he himself at the marriage of Messalina with the adulteress Solinus 
would actually sign the writings relative to her dowry, induced as it is pretended by the design of diverting from himself and transferring upon another the danger which some omens seemed to threaten him. Either standing or sitting, but especially where he lay asleep, he had a majestic and graceful appearance, for he was tall but not slender. His grey looks became him well, and he had a full neck, but his knees were feeble and failed him in walking, so that his gait was ungainly, both when he assumed state and when he was taking diversion. He was outrageous with his laughter, and still more so in his wrath, for then he foamed at the mouth and discharged from his nostrils. He also stammered in his speech, and had tremulous motion of the head at all times, but particularly when he was engaged in any business, however trifling. Although his health was very infirm during the former part of his life, yet after he became emperor he enjoyed a good state of health, except only that he was subject to a pain in the stomach. In a fit of this complaint he said that he had thoughts of killing himself. He gave entertainments as frequently as they were splendid, and generally when there was such ample room, that very often six hundred guests sat down together. At a feast he gave on the banks of the canal for draining the Fusian lake, he narrowly escaped being drowned, the water at its discharge rushing out with such violence that it overflowed the conduit. At supper he had always his own children, with those of several of the nobility, who, according to an ancient custom, sat at the feet of the couches, one of his guests, having been suspected of purloining a golden cup, he invited him again the next day, but served him with a porcelain jug. It is said, too, that he intended to publish an edict, allowing all people the liberty of giving vent at the table to any distension occasioned by flatulence, upon hearing of a person whose modesty, when under restraint, had nearly cost him his life. He was always ready to eat and drink at any time or in any place, one day, as he was hearing causes in the form of Augustus, he smelt the dinner which was preparing for the Salai in the temple of Mars adjoining, whereupon he quitted the tribunal and went to partake of the feast with the priests. He scarcely ever left the table until he had thoroughly crammed himself and drank to intoxication, and then he would immediately fall asleep, lying upon his back with his mouth open. While in this condition, a feather was put down his throat to make him throw up the contents of his stomach. Upon composing himself to rest, his sleep was short, and he usually woke around midnight, but he would sometimes sleep in the daytime, and that even when he was upon the tribunal, so that advocates often found it difficult to wake him, though they raised their voices for that purpose. He set no bounds on his libidious intercourse with women. He never betrayed any unnatural desires for the other sects. He was fond of gaming, and published a book upon the subject, he even used to play as he rode in his chariot, having the table so fitted that the game was not disturbed by the motion of the carriage. His cruel and sanguine disposition was exhibited upon great as well as trifling occasions. When any person was to be put to torture, or criminal punished for parricide, he was impatient for the execution, and would have it performed in his own presence. When he was at Tiber, being desirous of seeing an example of the old way of putting malefactors to death, some were immediately bound to a stake for the purpose. But there being no executioner to be had at the place, he sent for one from Rome and waited for his coming until night. In any exhibition of gladiators presented either by himself or others, if any of the combatants chanced to fall, he ordered them to be butchered, 
especially the retiari, that he might see their faces in the agonies of death. Two gladiators happening to kill each other, he immediately ordered some little knives to be made of their swords for his own use. He took great pleasure in seeing men engage with wild beasts and the combatants who appeared on the stage at noon. He would therefore come to the theatre by break of day, and at noon, dismissing the people to dinner, continued sitting himself, and besides those who were devoted to the sanguinary fate, he would match others with beasts upon sight or such occasions as, for instance, the carpenters and their assistants, and the people of that sort, if a machine or any piece of work in which they had been employed about the theatre did not answer the purpose for which it was intended. To this desperate kind of encounter he forced one of his nomenclators, even encumbered as he was by wearing the toga. But the characteristics most prominent in him were fear and distrust. In the beginning of his reign, although he much affected a modest and humble appearance, as has been already observed, yet he durst not venture himself at an entertainment without being attended by a guard or spearsman, and made soldiers wait upon him at the table instead of servants. He never visited a sick person until the chamber had been first searched and the bed and bedding thoroughly examined. At other times all persons who came to pay their court to him were strictly searched by officers appointed for that purpose, nor was it until a long time and with much difficulty was he prevailed upon to excuse women, boys and girls from such rude handling, or suffer their attendants or writing masters to retain their cases for pens and styles. When Camillus formed his plot against him, not doubting but his timidity might be worked upon without a war, he wrote to him a scurrilous, petulant, and threatening letter desiring him to resign the government and betake himself to a life of privacy. Upon receiving this requisition he had some thoughts of complying with it, and summoned together the principal men of the city to consult them on the subject. Having heard some loose reports of conspiracies formed against him, he was so much alarmed that he thought of immediately abdicating the government, and when, as I have before related, a man armed with a dagger was discovered near him while he was sacrificing, he instantly ordered the heralds to convoke the senate, and with tears and dismal exclamations lamented that such was his condition, that he was safe nowhere, and for a long time afterwards he abstained from appearing in public. He smothered his ardent love, for Messalina, not so much on account of her infamous conduct, as from the apprehension of danger, believing that she was aspired to share with Salinas, her partner in adultery, the imperial dignity. Upon this occasion he ran in a great fright, and a very shameful manner, to the camp, asking all the way he went, if the empire were indeed safely his. No suspicion was too trifling, no person on whom it rested too contemptible, to throw him into a panic, and induce him to take precautions for his safety, and meditate revenge. A man engaged in litigation before his tribunal, having saluted him, drew him aside, and told him he had dreamt that he saw him murdered, and shortly afterwards, when his adversary came to deliver his plea to the emperor, the plaintiff pretended to have discovered the murderer, pointed to him as the man he had seen in his dream, whereupon, as if he had been taken in the act, he was hurried away to execution, we are informed that Appius Salinus was got rid of in the same manner by the contrivance betwixt Messalina and Narcissus, in which they had their several parts assigned to them. Narcissus therefore burst into his lord's chamber before the daylight, apparently in great fright, and told him that he had dreamt that Appius Salinus had murdered him. 
The Empress, upon this affecting great surprise, declared that she had the like dream for several nights successively. Presently afterwards, word was brought, as it had been agreed on, that Appius was come, he having indeed received orders the preceding day to be there at that time, and as if the truth of the dream was sufficiently confirmed by his appearance at that juncture, he was immediately ordered to be prosecuted and put to death. The day following, Claudius related the whole affair to the Senate, and acknowledged his great obligation to his freed men for watching over him, even in his sleep. Sensible of his being subject to passions and resentment, he excused himself in both instances by the proclamation assuring the public that the former should be short and harmless, the latter never without good cause. After severely reprimanding the people of Ostia for not sending some boats to meet him upon his entering the mouth of the Tiber, in terms which might expose them to public resentment, he wrote to Rome that he had been treated as a private person, yet immediately afterwards he pardoned them, and that in a way which had appearance of making them satisfaction, or begging pardon, for some injury he had done them. Some people who addressed him unseasonably in public he pushed away with his own hand. He likewise banished a person who had been secretary to a quaestor, and even a senator who had filled the office of praetor, without hearing. And although they were innocent, the former only because he had treated him with rudeness while he was in a private station, the other because in his adulship he had fined some tenants of his for selling cooked victuals contrary to the law, and ordered his steward, who interfered, to be whipped. On this account, likewise, he took from the Adais the jurisdiction they had over Cook's shops. He did not scruple to speak of his own absurdities, and declared in some short speeches which he published that he had only feigned imbecility in the reign of Caius, because otherwise it would have been impossible for him to have escaped and arrived at the station he had then attained. He could not, however, gain credit for this assertion, for a short time afterwards a book was published under the title of Moron Anastasis, The Resurrection of Fools, the design of which was to show that nobody ever counterfeited folly. Amongst other things, people admired in him his indifference and unconcern, or to express it in Greek, his meteoria and apopepsia. Placing him at a table a little after Messalina's death, he inquired why the empress did not come. Many of those whom he had condemned to death, he ordered the day after to be invited to his table, and to game with him, and sent to reprimand them as sluggish fellows for not making greater haste. When he was meditating his incestuous marriage with Agrippina, he was perpetually calling her, My daughter, my nursling, born and brought up upon my lap. And when he was going to adopt Nero, as if there was little cause for censure in his adopting a son-in-law, when he had a son of his own arrived at the years of maturity, he continually gave out in public that no one had ever been admitted by adoption into the Claudian family. He frequently appeared so careless in what he said, and so inattentive to circumstances, that it was believed he never reflected who he himself was, or amongst whom, or at what time, or in what place he spoke. In a debate in Senate, relative to the butchers and vintners, he cried out, I ask you, who can live without a bit of meat? And mentioned the great plenty of the old taverns, from which he himself used formerly to have his wine among other reasons for his supporting a certain person who was candidate for the questorship he gave this his father once gave me very seasonably a draught of cold water when i was sick upon his bringing a woman as a witness in some cause before the senate he said this woman was my mother's freed woman and dresser but she always considered me as her master and this i say because there are some 
still in my family that do not look upon me as such. The people of Ostia addressing him in open court with a petition, he flew into a rage at them and said, There is no reason why I should oblige you. If anyone else is free to act as he pleases, surely I am. The following expression he had in his mouth every day, and at all hours and seasons. What, you take me for a theologus? And in Greek, speak but do not touch me. Besides many other familiar sentences, below the dignity of a private person, much more of an emperor, who was not deficient either in eloquence or learning, as having applied himself very closely to the liberal sciences. By the encouragement of Titus Livius, and with the assistance of Sulpicus Flavus, he attempted at an early age the composition of a history, and having called together a numerous adultery to hear and give their judgment upon it, he read it over with such difficulty, and frequently interrupting himself, for after he had begun a great laugh was raised among the company, by the breaking of several benches from the weight of very fat men, and even when order was restored he could not forbear bursting out into violent fits of laughter at the remembrance of the accident. After he became emperor, likewise, he wrote several things which he was careful to have recited to his friends by a reader. He commenced his history from the death of the dictator Caesar, but afterwards he took a later period and began at the conclusion of the civil wars, because he found he could not speak with freedom and due regard to truth concerning the former period, having been often taken to task both by his mother and grandmother. Of the earlier history he left only two books, but of the latter one and forty. He compiled likewise the history of his own life in eight books, full of absurdities, but in no bad style. Also a defence of Ciro against the books of Asinius Gallus, which exhibited a considerable degree of learning. He besides invented three new letters and added them to the former alphabet as highly necessary. He published a book to recommend them while he was yet only a private person, but on his elevation to imperial power he had little difficulty in introducing them into common use, and these letters are still extant in the variety of books, registers, and inscriptions upon buildings. He applied himself with no less attention to the study of Grecian literature, asserting upon all occasions his love of that language, and its surpassed excellency. A stranger once holding a discourse, both in Greek and Latin, he addressed him thus, since you are skilled in both our tongues, and recommended Achaia to the favour of the Senate, he said, I have a particular attachment to that province on account of our common studies. In the Senate he often made long replies to ambassadors in that language. On the tribunal he frequently quoted the verses of Homer. When at any time he had taken vengeance on an enemy or a conspirator, he scarcely ever gave to the tribunal on guard, who, according to the custom, came for the word any other than this, Andra epinasti ot tis proturus shalpani, tis time to strike when wrong demands the blow. To conclude, he wrote some histories likewise in Greek, namely twenty books on Tuscan affairs, and eight on the Carthaginian, in consequence of which another museum was founded at Alexandria, in addition to the old one, and called after his name and it was ordered that upon certain days in every year his Tuscan history should be read over in one of these, and his Carthaginian in another, as in a school, each history being read through by persons who took it in turn. Towards the close of his life he gave some manifest indications that he repented of his marriage with Agrippina, and his adoption of Nero, 
for some of his freed men, noticing with approbation his having condemned the day before a woman accused of adultery, he remarked, It has been my misfortune to have wives who have been unfaithful to my bed, but they did not escape punishment. Often, when he happened to meet Britannicus, he would embrace him tenderly and express a desire that he might grow apace, and receive from him an account of all his actions using the Greek phrase, Otrosus kai iasetai. He who was wounded would also heal. And intending to give him the manly habit while he was yet under age and tender youth, because his stature would allow it, he added, I do so, and the Roman people may at last have a real Caesar. Soon afterwards he made his will, and had it signed by all the magistrates as witnesses, but he was prevented from proceeding further by Agrippina, accused by her own guilty conscience, as well as by informers of a variety of crimes. It was agreed that he was taken off by poison, but where and by whom administered remains in uncertainty. Some authors also say that it was given him as he was feasting with the priests in the capital by the eunuch Halotus, his taster, others said by Agrippina, at his own table in mushrooms, a dish of which he was very fond. The accounts of what followed likewise differ. Some relate that he instantly became speechless, was racked with pain through the night, and died about daybreak. Others, that at first he fell into a sound sleep, and afterwards, his food rising, he threw up the hole, but had another dose given him, whether in water gruel, under pretense of refreshment, after his exhaustion, or in a cloister as if designed to relieve his bowels, is likewise uncertain. His death was kept secret until everything was settled relative to his successor. Accordingly, vows were made for his recovery, and the comedians were called to amuse him, as it was pretended by his own desire. He died upon the 3rd of the Ides of October, 13th of October, in the consulship of Isinius Marcellus and Achilles Aviola, in the sixty-fourth year of his age and the fourteenth of his reign. His funeral was celebrated with the customary imperial pomp, and he was ranked amongst the guards. His honour was taken from him by Nero, but restored by Vespasian. The chief passages of his death were the appearance of a comet, his father Drusus's monument being struck by lightning, and the death of most of the magistrates of all ranks that year. It appears from several circumstances that he was sensible of his approaching dissolution, and made no secret of it, for when he nominated the consuls, he appointed no one to fill the office beyond the month in which he had died. At the last assembly of the Senate in which he had made his appearance, he earnestly exhorted his two sons to unity with each other, and with earnest entreaties commanded to the fathers the care of their tender years, and in the last cause that he heard from the tribunal he repeatedly declared in open court that he was now arrived at the last stage of mortal existence, while all who heard it shrunk at hearing these ominous words. End of Claudius Recording by Alan Steely, Bristol, UK